Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Farah. She is a British national with an Indian heart, currently based in Dubai. After the untimely loss of her mother, she authored a memoir in which she shares her struggles to reconcile the mysteries of life and death. So Farah's got a lot of background that she can share on and what she's got going on now. So thank you so much, Farah. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Um, so I think your audience will hear the accent is not from America. Um, so living in Dubai, as you said, um, have been to different countries, lived in different countries, grown up in different countries. So I was born in London. Um, and when I was four years old, my mother took me to India to see my maternal grandmother. Um, and then through a series of circumstances, um, my mother decided we were going to stay in India they forgot to tell me about it, but that's okay. I was put in school there. I didn't speak the language. I looked a little bit different. Um, so a little bit of an adjustment age five, trying to figure the language um, as well and navigate school life as an outsider. And then we spent, or I spent 14 years there. And when I was 18, um, India doesn't do dual nationality and I had my British passport. So it became a question of, do I stay or do I leave? And I think in my head, it had always been India was temporary and I was meant to go home because that had been the narrative age four, which I'd carried through. Um, so I was very keen to leave. Um, and so we sort of mobilized for me to go back to London. So aged 18, I went back. I wanted to become a doctor, so in my head I was going to go and study medicine and save the world, but that didn't happen either. Um, and I ended up as a trainee in banking, aged 18, um, and I've built my career through since, and I'm still in banking and finance some 30-plus years later. Um, worked in London, uh, grew my career there, and then moved to Dubai about 22 years ago. And I've been here since, and it's been home to me and my family. Um, and that's where I'm speaking to you from today. I saw you chuckling at my wry humor. The slightly dark British dry wit comes through, so I hope it translates. <laughs> but it's a slight, you know, <laughs> sarcastic sort of humor um, that doesn't always land well, but yeah. That's okay. That's, you know, differences in culture. I appreciate, you know, you sharing that background and having known that you had gotten into banking, the fact that you wanted to be a doctor, I was like, didn't see that one coming. Um, <laughs> so do you want to start a little bit about, you know, childhood growing up in India, you know, you weren't expecting to stay. So what was that like learning the language and assimilating? I think when I first went back, it was meant to be a month and a holiday. So I was in my grandmother's home and being pampered and, you know, you know, in a cocoon, just mingling with family friends. So I wasn't exposed, if you like, to the wider city or the other influences. And then when it became clear that we weren't going back and I was put in school, um, it was quite a cultural adjustment, shall we say. So, you know, in India, it's big on exams. So you sort of study wrote and then you sort of have exams um first hindi exam i got 
a zero because I couldn't read the language, I couldn't speak the language. Um, and I remember the shame of that because Indians were very, you know, uh, proud of achieving and always striving for those A stars and top marks and all of that. Um, so it was a little bit tricky. Also, I don't look typically Indian. Like, I don't know if you feel I look different. Um, and I have big curly hair. I still have big curly hair, which has been tamed within an inch of its life. Um, and, you know, as a child with a slightly British accent, not speaking the language, big curly hair, slightly paler, um, it was, I was always different and I was pointed out for being different. So I stood out, even if I wanted to blend in and assimilate, I was always going to be uh, noticed, if you like, for being different. And then my family was a little different. My mother was different. She, in a city that was fairly conservative, a small town in northern India, it's a Muslim city in India, predominantly is Hindu. And I was going to a Catholic convent and we are Parsis by faith. And my mother trained as a lawyer and she would walk around in trousers smoking cigarettes, which was not what the other mums were doing. You know? So I was the daughter of someone who was different as well. So all the more reason for me to stand out and be differentiated. And I used to say to my mom when she was coming for those parent-teacher meetings, I was like, mom, could you just dress a little, you know, normal, you know, like slightly more conservatively? And she would say, you know, you can't stop people talking any more than you can stop dogs barking. It sounds a little bit extreme, but what she was saying is just be yourself, live life on your terms, and don't worry about what people say about you. Um, so the cultural assimilation initially as was a little bit harrowing and challenging, but by as you grow through your teens, again, there's the whole teen angst bit going on. My mother had obviously left my dad. They were getting divorced. My mother was dating someone else. You know, there was a lot of reasons for my teen years to be uh, tumultuous, shall we say. And then when I was 18, I was able to leave. So that then allowed me to get a different perspective on my mother's choices. Or as I became an adult and had my own challenges, I could appreciate her choices differently and look at them differently and um, not just as the daughter of you know, but as just a human or a lady of a certain age who's facing challenges, how would she have behaved? How would I have behaved? Um, and as we grew through that and I became an adult and then I got married and had my children, you know, mom and I, despite the bickering, she always said to me, when you have a child, you will know the bond between yourself and your firstborn. It's one of those bonds that you can't, you know, they can't be shaken um, and whilst I was very good at pressing her buttons, as she would remind me, you know, there was that bond that was very strong as well. Um, and then, you know, living, leaving India, I think when I left, I was still sort of in my head heading to London and, you know, London was going to be not the salvation, but I was going home in a way. And yet, as I've grown older, it's my upbringing in India that feels the richest, that's given me the most. It's given me my understanding of different cultures. It's allowed me to navigate life and geographies and straddle, you know, countries with ease and weave in and out. You know, I can be in India and as comfortable as I am in Dubai talking to you or in London, you know, walking the streets there. So it's given me a really rich um basis to be able to navigate my life now definitely and it's interesting you know kind of that 
I felt like London was going home for you, even though it was just a few years in your childhood to then now, like when you're reflecting back on your life, realizing what those different experiences really meant to you. Correct. So what was it like getting back to London and then pursuing a career in banking? Did you feel like then all of a sudden you were fitting in or were you back again as being an outsider? So true. Very, very spot on. Because in India, I wasn't Indian enough, right? When I landed, I was different. When I come back to London and I've not been there for 14 years, I'm not, you know, uh, from there for a period of time. And there was this desire to be a doctor. So I explored, you know, if I could get admission in universities and how I would work that. And in England at the time, there was a grant system where they would subsidize the student fees and medicine was, you know, fairly hefty. Um, but as it turned out, because mom hadn't been in the country and my father hadn't been in the country paying taxes, I wasn't eligible for a grant. And the full rate as an overseas student wasn't something my mom could afford. And neither of the patriarchy was stumping up, you know, or stepping up to support. So it became a question of, okay, I need to fund myself and support myself and put myself through college. Um, I started working in a shoe shop. You know, I was in a little town in you know, in England with a family friend and I started working in a high street shoe shop. I worked in a hospital, you know, trying to get as close to medicine as I could. It still wasn't, you know, the path that I was meant to go down. And then through our network, I was introduced to a bank that took me on as a trainee, knowing I was willing to learn, but I just didn't have any background. Um, I didn't even have a degree. So it was literally a training position and I went from there. And again, it was somewhere that was not what I had planned, right? But that was clearly what the universe wanted me to do. So maybe there's that little bit of internal wrestle about, am I ever going to get to be a doctor or a sense of making peace with this is what it's got to be without that, um, maybe a little bit of a disappointment that I didn't get to achieve what I wanted to achieve. But then again, 30 years hence, I'm still in it. So clearly this was the path I was meant to go down, but I was just rooted to it by, you know, um, a different channel, if you like. So it did take a little bit of time to settle in, to find my groove, to feel comfortable, um, and find myself like who I was also without the influence of my family or that baggage, but just be who I was. And so then you're now in Dubai, still in banking. So is banking different in Dubai or are you kind of like part of a bigger national company that it's very similar and you were easily able to translate from banking in London to banking in Dubai? So when I initially transferred to Dubai, I was with the same firm that I worked with in London. So it was an easy transition. And then I went to another multinational um, company, which was, again, an easy transition. Right now, I'm with a local uh, firm, but banking is banking. We're dealing with customers and we're dealing with the money. So it's an easy transition. The only difference every organization, I would say, is the culture. Um, but banking in of itself, um, it's an easy one to navigate. And so then culture in general, not necessarily like within banking, how 
was the move to Dubai and how has it been in Dubai for because you have now it seemingly seems like settled in Dubai for the rest of your life. I could be wrong. You could have plans to maybe (laughs) sometime go somewhere else, but you've been there, you know, for a good chunk of adulthood now. Yeah. So I think Dubai as a city is a melting pot because 80% of the population are expats and they come from all over the world. Um, And of that 80%, I would say the majority are Indians. So my skills, my Indian language skills serve me far better here, if you like, than anywhere else in the world. Because anywhere you go, you're going to need the language, whether you're at the petrol station or in the grocery store or, you know, just dealing with people because they come from that part of the world. And the minute I start speaking to them in Hindi, the doors open up and they're these big smiles because I think they almost don't expect me to speak Hindi. And then when I speak it, it's like a little added bonus. Um, Culturally, it's so diverse and that's lovely. You know, you can mingle with Europeans and people from the Middle East and the Brits and, you know, whoever and whatever. And for me, I'm looking for, you know, people that I resonate with rather than any cultural affinity, so to speak. Um, So yeah, culturally wise, it's been easy to be here um, and just be part of the fabric of Dubai. Where life takes me next, we don't know. Could be anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Never say never. It could be anywhere. Um, And I'm, I'm like open to that because I think I've become really comfortable with change I say that you know fingers crossed but there's been so much change and transition that I've learned to become comfortable with it and through my career I led change and projects and transitions and transformations so that's also given me a little bit more um, comfort with just dealing with changes. And so then you mentioned how you're obviously still using Hindi now in Dubai when you were in London, were you speaking Hindi that like you didn't lose the language or was there like that adjustment? Because I know everyone's different when it comes to learning multiple languages. So if I was speaking with family back home, we mix sort of English and Hindi and you'd lapse into Hindi. There are certain words that, you know, would only land in Hindi. And if I had friends who were Indian, we would definitely, you know, revert to Hindi. But I wasn't perhaps using Hindi as much in London as I get to use it in Dubai, Um, only because of the society that we move in and the people around us, given the majority are from India, um, it's an easy one to be able to use on a daily basis. Great. Switching gears a little bit, you have this memoir, you've talked a lot about your family and kind of the importance they've had in your life. So... Can you share a little bit about your mother's untimely loss and kind of how your life changed in that moment? Um, My mom was back in Lucknow when the incident occurred and I got a phone call in the middle of the night to say she had been shot. Um, It was a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. There were some youths, she challenged their behavior. They didn't want to apologize and one took out a gun and shot her at close range. So there was the physical impact and then the internal injuries. And she was airlifted and brought to Delhi, which is the capital of India. And I was in Dubai. So I flew into India the next day and no one really expected her to survive the gunshot. 
but she survived for 25 days and then passed away from her internal injuries and bleeding, which they couldn't find the source of to stem. Um, and I think there's the loss of a parent, you know, that it's, you know, universal, but it's the way in which it was a untimely, a brutal, or be brutal, um, and just the manner in which it happened that was so horrific. And that takes you on a whole different, it takes you a whole different um, level of understanding to try and make sense of anything like why would something like that happen or why would it happen to her or how could it happen to us um, over and above the loss of the parent. And she was the only parent in my life really growing up. So it was a loss of my foundation um, at a time when really she it was she was far too young and she didn't need to go. That to us it was not her time. So you did have the fortune to have those twenty five days. So what was that period of time like? Since the expectation was that she was not going to survive. So I think the first few days were really grim because she was still sort of semi-conscious, heavily sedated, in a lot of pain, uh, strapped up to a lot of machines. And then she started coming through. But because of the gun wound, her diaphragm and her lungs were impacted, so they had put a ventilator. So she couldn't speak, but she was beginning to sit up towards day eight, day nine, day ten. She was beginning to sit up and sign. You know, she was signing to us and gesticulating and communicating um, and the police came into question her and she said you know if the same thing I was in the same position again I would do exactly the same and that was her spirit and her fighting spirit um, and there was so I had left the kids and I had come um, and because we thought she was going to get better but it was going to be the long haul right that this was not going to be something she would overcome overnight and she would get better, come out of hospital, maybe physio. You know, we didn't know what her mobility would be like. But in my head, I was planning for a future where mom would come out of the hospital. So I flew overnight, sort of flew in the morning, came into Dubai, picked up the kids, flew straight back into India because I was doing the morning shift. So I'd be there from 6, 7 in the morning, relieve one of my siblings who had done the night shift and then take over for the rest of the day. So I brought the kids there. And I truly believed she was going to overcome it and get better. And we'd take her home. And then I started looking for properties with ramps. And I thought I'd need wheelchair access. And was it close to a hospital? And, you know, all of these sort of logistical um, considerations. And then day 23, you know, she started bleeding. And we couldn't, the doctors couldn't identify the source. Um, and from there on, she dipped um, and didn't recover and said to me at one point, you know, baby, I think this is the end. So, um, which, you know, gets you every time um, for her to say that. And I remember, you know, my eyes tearing up and saying, no, of course not, and trying to say the right things. But, you know, your face and your eyes tell a different story. So, yeah, it was uh, a bit of a roller coaster, um, shall we say. Um, and then she passed at the end of those 25 days. And I think a bit of a roller coaster is, you know, exactly, you know, the right way to share it and what people would expect um, in that sort of situation. So 
Now, post that, you know, you're back in Dubai, you're dealing with grief, you're figuring out, you know, kind of why did this happen? It was early, you know, for her to pass away and you've since written a book. So can you take us through like those feelings, those emotions and how you had to continue your life? So when I got back to Dubai, you know, two young children, still my job, my my company at the time, this is the same company that I had worked with in London and moved to Dubai with. They were amazing and had given me time off emergency leave, you know, with no end date defined. Um, and when I came back, obviously, I, you know, stepped back into work and you you go through the day and because you're busy with work stuff, your mind is occupied and it doesn't sort of drift towards the grief. And you come home and you're dealing with the children and you put them to bed and then it's all of a sudden, you know, the grief like wants to come back in because it's like you've kept me at bay through the day, but now it's sort of time for me to take over. Um, And there were many days where it was just like a fog, you know, a sea of sort of sadness, sort of grayness, and you, you operate as if on autopilot and you go through the motions, but... Your emotions are all over the place. So I went for grief counseling because I I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what was expected. I didn't know what the norm was, um, as if there might even be a norm for these sort of situations. I I just didn't have the tools myself. So I went for grief counseling. Um, I started, you know, I've always been physical and had a yoga practice, but I started going to yoga more and found it a safe space and a space where I could bring my mind into a little bit of balance. Um, And as my body got stronger through the practice, then I was able to almost control the mind and the thoughts a little bit better as well. Um, And you just feel a bit better equipped to deal with whatever life's throwing at you. And then something like baking, I mean, we're foodies, parsies, we talk about food all day and we plan the next meal before the first meal's even over. Um, and I love baking. So I used to bake a lot. And someone on one of the podcasts actually said to me, there are nerve endings in the hands. And when you work with your hands, you're processing the emotions. So whether it's gardening or painting, in my case, baking, you're working with your hands and releasing the emotions. So that took on you know, a life of its own. I'd always baked, but it's almost like I would come home from work and I'd enter the kitchen and I want to create. It's not that I wanted to eat anything specific. It was just that I wanted to be in that creative sort of space and motion. Um, And then of course the smell of whatever you bake fills the air and it lifts your spirits a little bit. And then someone eats it and says, well, that's delicious or whatever. And it just makes it a little bit less um, of a sad time. So all of this was, Going on, um, I was journaling a lot, part of the therapy, but I've also always kept a journal. And then the memoir wasn't so much, you know, premeditated that I want to sit down and write a book. It was more just a case of words tumbling out and I was writing. And the heart of the story, which is the incident with mom, was what sort of tumbled out first. And I shared that with some close friends and got some feedback. I didn't know if I had a voice. I didn't know if there was something that I had to say that I didn't know if it was something people would want to read or, um, you know, if it even made sense to expand on it, but they gave me great feedback. So I sort of wrote for a few years 
and then um, just kept reviewing, revising, trying to get a publishing deal. Got a lot of rejections, you know, it was a lot of delete buttons <laughs> pressing uh, for each of those. And then I think, you know, the book in itself comes with its own life and has a way it needed to come out into the world. And here's where we find me talking to you about it. And so what has it been like then since publishing the book, you know, putting all of that out there to a wider audience? Is there like vulnerability in that? Or is it just kind of like this was also just part of part of healing? I think a mix of both, you know, it. so I think a few years ago, I might not have been able, or I maybe wasn't ready, which is why probably I didn't get to publish then. I think when you've healed enough to be able to articulate whatever we talk about without the emotion surging up again, right, and being able to put out there, and yes, the vulnerability is there, but it's also a sense of, if I share, maybe it touches someone else. Maybe someone else is going through it and can take something from my book and learn about it. And it's also to celebrate the legacy of my mother. You know, she was an amazing character, personality person, and um, it's to pay homage to her and just celebrate the person she was. That's, you know, the all of her rather than how she passed. It's, you know, every facet of her personality, not just the end of it. Um, if you like right and that that makes sense and you know it's it's good for you to have those moments to to share about her more than just that one incident so what you know do you have plans to write another book or will it be this one memoir you know really dedicated to your mom or kind of where are you in that that thought process since it wasn't premeditated so I think I've got more stories inside of me. So I think there could definitely be another book. And then something centered around food, because baking, like today I baked three banana bread cakes. You know, Like I take a cake into my office every day and I go to, I have three different offices that I visit over two days. So three cakes have been baked to take to the three offices. And banana bread, A, because I had ripe bananas, but also because it's my daughter's favorite and it's her birthday month. So, you know, the partying starts from the 1st of November. So I, I messaged her and I said, you know, the whole office is going to celebrate in lieu of your birthday and get banana bread. <laughs> so she was laughing. So I think something around food, um, you know, that, that would be kind of nice to bring to life. And speaking of food, you know, you've shared about all these cultures you've experienced, lived in, visited and how food is so important to, you know, Parsi culture. Can you share a little bit about your food interests and what, you know, makes food so rich for you? I think food, you tell stories with food, you build community with food. Um, like you, we could have a particular meal and I might have a memory about it because something happened at the table or my mother made something or my grandmother made something. And it's, it's legacies that you pass down through generations. You know, the way I make my banana bread may not be the way somebody else makes it. You know, like my daughter likes dark chocolate chopped up into it, for example. 
that maybe, you know, a standard banana bread or somebody else might not do, or I might decide to put orange rind in it to give it a different layer of um, smell and aroma. So I think food for me just feeds the soul in a way um, that I find it's just uplifting. And I definitely think it helps bring people together. You know, it's like when I take a cake into the office, it's suddenly the energy changes, people walking around, people say, oh, I want another piece. You know, I'm like, make sure everyone gets a piece. It suddenly sort of just energizes the floor and the people. Um, and I also think it means, yes, there's the nutritional value. So I eat clean, for example, as my own preference. Um, and as I've gotten older, my body's tells me very loudly if something agrees with it or not. And I've learned to figure out what works for me and what doesn't work for me. Um, and I just think, you know, it's what we put in our body to nurture and nourish this, you know, sort of physical home of ours, if you like. Um, and it's incumbent on us to look after it and give it the best that you can. Um, and, the baking part of it is more the spreading of the joy and the desserts, and it's that sweet ending which I love. Um, so yeah, I means I think there's a book on food coming <laughs> <laughs> after all of that. Um, just yeah, there's something magical about food for me. Of course, and you also mentioned in addition to the baking, you know, post your mother's passing, yoga was something you again kind of got more into. So what does your yoga practice look like nowadays? So vinyasa is my yoga floor of choice, and I try and get in at least two or three classes. I trained as a teacher as well and started a yoga club for my colleagues in one of my previous organizations to introduce different people to the love of yoga that I have. Um, and I try and practice for myself at least you know two or three times a week if I can, and I mix it up with the German lifting and weight training as well um, when you get to a certain age you need to make sure the muscles and the bones and you know all of the bone density is maintained so um, I need to combine the two um, but yeah I, I do try I do practice it still gives me as much joy this morning Sunday my Sunday morning jam is you know uh, eight thirty yoga class um, so I do try and keep it up and since this is part of more of an overall fitness routine and you mentioned, you know, eating clean, how has your, you know, health changed as, you know, you've needed to take care of your bones as you age? Like, was physical activity something you were doing when you were younger or is this more of kind of like I'm at a point in my life, I, I need to commit to this? When I was younger, so at school, you'd do normal, you know, the basketball, baseball, cricket, sort of obligatory sports. And I don't think I was ever really drawn to those. Um, but I love anything that manipulates and moves the body. So I think when I became a young adult living in London, I would go to, you know, classes. At that time, it was all about aerobics and I think Jane Fonda. But um, yoga also, I started doing yoga there. And I've always maintained some sort of a practice. You know, it's iterated over time as to what I do. You know, I tried aerial hoops and I've tried the silks and I've tried, you know, anything that I, Zumba or whatever. But yoga is a steady constant in all of that. Um, 
that sort of keeps me grounded. That's more for my mental well-being as well as my physical well-being. And then I add on to it. So whether I add on Pilates or I go to the gym or I do a dance class. Um, but I've done that pretty much throughout my adult life. Now I'm just more conscious of what feels right in my body. So I can't, like I don't want to put strain on my joints, for example, but I do need to make sure my muscles around it are strong enough to support it so that I stay mobile and, you know, stay in the best possible health. All right. Well, it's important, you know, to be mindful of those things and, you know, prolong your health. Now, if you're willing to share, I'd be curious to know kind of about your children, not specifically like what they're up to, but just kind of what raising them has been like, you know, raising them compared to how you were raised um, and, you know, things like that, if you're willing to share. Sure. Um, so my daughter was born in London and we moved to Dubai when she was six months old. My son was born in Dubai and they've grown up here. Um, and I think Dubai as a country allowed me to be a working mom and allowed me to have my career and look off, be a hands-on parent. And growing up, my mom wasn't very hands-on. Um, that was just that whole generation of parent parenting was different to ours. And I don't know if ours is a reaction to that. My generation is a lot more hands-on. Um, and, you know, with my first employer, when the kids were young, I had arranged that I could leave early, like I would skip a lunch break, start early, work through so I could leave early, so I could be there for the kids and their after school activities and, you know, put them to bed. And my mother did none of that. So I'm a very, very different uh, parent to the way I was parented. Um, and it's been great to see them become these young adults with a set of values that I hoped to impart to them. And I write about in the book that as a child, my grandmother used to say to me, it's a Parsi um, maxim about good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. And if you distill everything down to the core sort of level, that's what it stands for. And I've tried to give that to them to be considerate people, to speak kindly, to you know take care with their actions and just be good human beings. Um, so they're both, they're off at university. Um, they're both in their final years of their studies. Um, and both somehow seem to have converged um, in through different fields. Um, one is doing science and one is doing law now um, on environment and uh, climate change, which is interesting because I think this whole generation is so much more aware than we were, um, you know, about the impact of our actions, individual actions on this planet we live on. So yeah, really super proud of them. Um, and, you know, hope to see them continue to grow and be successful. Right. I think it's always, you know, you mentioned the generational differences. I think it's important to realize and, you know, see those different things and reflect back on, you know, you were doing, you know, the best that you could, you worked through your work to make sure you could be there with them. Um, and now they're, they're seeing success in, in their studies. Of course, you mentioned how you originally wanted to be a doctor, but banking has been this place that you've fallen into and obviously, you know, had a successful career in it. 
Have you ever, you know, wanted to leave banking? <laughs> Many times. <laughs> but I don't know if I would go towards medicine. It's more, so I've always felt, for example, you know, I started my career without a degree and often, especially at points of transition when I'm changing jobs or, you know, leveling up in my career, I've always felt, should I do an MBA and part of me thinks I'd rather do a yoga teacher training. So <laughs> if I left banking, I don't know where I'd head to. Um, but I feel, you know, more called to do healing stuff, not medicine, but healing stuff, maybe more, you know, yoga or open a cafe. That's kind of a little bit of a dream out there. Um, in my head, it's on the beach, you know, I've got a yoga studio upstairs. I've got a cafe downstairs. The doors open up. The waters there. I don't know which part of the world this is happening in, but th that's that's the vision. <laughs> so, so yeah. When you say, "Have I thought about leaving back?" Many times. <laughs> yes, I mean, a banking is one of those careers. I think you know, people are either in it for the long haul or or not at all. So, yeah, true. But um, needs must and all of that. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I have any other specific questions that I want to ask you. Um, so I kind of want to open the floor for you to share any stories that you would like to share about that you have experienced in your life. That's, that's a, that's a wide invitation. It is. <laughs> stories. I think so. As we're recording this, we're coming up to um, that time of the year when it's Diwali um, in India. So the Festival of Lights, as you might know it. Um, and we're Parsi, so Diwali is not ours necessarily, but it's very big in India. And we lived in a town where we're celebrating. We had friends who were Hindus and Muslims, and my mother dated and married a gentleman who was Hindu. So it was a big sort of deal. And my mother was very into it, and she loved a good party. And anything for a good party. So Diwali, um, the celebrations of Diwali start 20 days prior. So Diwali is on the 12th slash 13th of November and 20 days prior is Dashera. And the story of Diwali is, comes from one of the two epics, um, the Ramayan, and it's about Ram, who is sent to exile by his father because the stepmother wanted her son to be king. So he and his younger brother Lakshman and his wife go into the forest in exile for 13 years and they have the battle with Ravan, the god who abducts Sita from Sri Lanka. It was This is sort of the background to Diwali. So my mother and her friends would start the partying from the Shara and it would carry on way past Diwali, you know, 10 days, 12 days past to an occasion that's called Gangasnan. And when I say partying, so Diwali is also associated with the goddess of wealth, Lakshmi. And it's good to gamble a little bit, to invite her in. It's almost like you're paying you know, your respects to the goddess of wealth by taking a flutter with cards or whatever to invite her into your home. So they took it to a whole different level. They used to have all-night card parties. And when I say all-night, literally all-night. So when we were talking about styles of parenting, mom was never awake when I was getting up to go to school. You know, she would be sleeping and then she'd go to court and then she'd go out and she'd come home late at night. 
But Diwali was the only time when I got up in the morning, mum would be returning from these all-night card parties. We would have breakfast together. I would go to school and she'd go to bed. And that, for me, was the best bit about Diwali. Above, you know, all the sweets and the food and the new clothes and the firecrackers and all of that, that was the treat of Diwali for me. So um, that that just makes me smile. When I think of Diwali, I think of mom and I think of how much she loved it and the parties in the house and the people and, you know, the music and food flowing and drink flowing all night and then breakfast in the morning before I went to school with her. I think that is a great story to share. And I appreciate, you know, you imparting a little bit about that culture. Um, it was something, you know, kind of you were just surrounded with, even though it wasn't necessarily part of you. Is it something at all that you continue to celebrate in any minor ways? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Like carry on the tradition, not the all night card parties, but part of it is a renewal. It's a, it's a, it's considered the new year in the Hindu calendar. So normally the house gets refreshed or painted. Um, you put lights outside the house, new clothes, you invite friends over for dinner, you celebrate with friends and family. And, you know, there's certain prayers um, that you do. I do all of that other than the cards party, but yeah. So, uh, yeah, we keep the tradition. Great. I love to hear, you know, how you're keeping traditions alive, but also not partaking in the card parties to, you know, doing your own thing a little bit. <laughs> maybe, maybe just on Diwali night, but not the 20 days prior and the 12 days after. <laughs> they were so funny. They were like, but it's still the season. Like, it's, it sounds like my daughter and her all month birthday celebration a little bit. Yes, you're celebrating as much as you can uh, to the, to the what may be a, a bit of an exorbitant limit on, on celebrating. <laughs> Absolutely. At the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question that doesn't have to do anything we've been talking about. So my question for you is, it's a little bit different. If you had a warning label for yourself, what would it say? Handle with care. (laughs) It would definitely be handle with care. All right, that brings this episode to a close. Of course, if you would like to connect with Farah, I will be leaving her website in the description along with her Instagram. Um, Both of those, you can, of course, get connected with her book. So the direct Amazon link for Meher and me will be there as well. But of course, you can buy the book at any of your preferred online retailer. And if you do get the book, she would love to hear your feedback and reviews. So feel free to connect with her. And if you would like to connect with the podcast, Our website is in the description that brings you to our social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So feel free to go like those pages to continue to support the podcast. And it also brings you to all of our past episodes, past resources, all of that good information. If you would like to share your story on the podcast, my email is in the description. That is always the best way to reach me. And if you would like to support the podcast monetarily to cover some of the costs of podcasting, there is a link to do that. And it's always appreciated. So thank you so much, Farah, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Bye.